Well, we do turn to Luke chapter 11, and we're beginning our reading from verse 1. This is Luke 11, starting from verse 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? May God add his blessing upon that reading of his own word. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we ask that you'd open our eyes, even as you've given us this bright light that we might see with our eyes. We pray, Lord, that spiritually you might enable us to see something in these most familiar words, words well known to us, Lord, but we we fear, we suspect, maybe not fully understood. And if fully understood, then perhaps not fully carried out. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we begin now here in this next chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 11, and we find ourselves in the Lord's Prayer, as I mentioned, one of the most familiar passages in Scripture, also called the Model Prayer. And the reason why we have this recorded for us, at least in this gospel, and we should never think that Jesus simply, he only said things once, he was the greatest teacher who ever lived, and any teacher worth his salt will repeat things that are important, and so Jesus certainly repeated things that are important. Well, but as we have it here in in this gospel, given to us in verse 1, we have the situation. Now, it came to pass as he, meaning Jesus, was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And two things immediately strike me about that. That, first of all, A, it happened because they were just so impressed 
by Jesus' own prayer, perhaps in the greater sense his prayer life. They were so blown away by his prayer that it prompted us, prompted them to say, Lord, we want to pray like that. And B, this disciple, he's not named, but the disciple who actually makes a request, is making the comparison, the pointed comparison, with John the Baptist and his disciples. As if to say, Lord, why do they get this great privilege of actually being taught how to pray? And we haven't yet. We want that privilege. Those are very striking things. And I think godly jealousy like that is not rebuked. Ungodly jealousy, worldly jealousy, envy, so forth they are. But a godly jealousy to want to have the spiritual riches of someone else, the Lord is ready to bear with us on those sort of things. Well, I mention these things because I think there was actually wisdom in the Lord waiting for them to take the initiative in order to teach them about prayer. You would think this is one of the most important things that there is. I wouldn't say that he said nothing about prayer. He probably did in one way or another teach them about prayer, and he certainly set his own example. He was never that far from them. He did go up to the mountain frequently to pray. He did step away from them, but they knew that. So I wouldn't say that he he withheld from them the very idea of prayer, but there was wisdom perhaps in waiting to actually give them the full-on teaching about prayer. And I think it has to do with a couple of different things. You know, Christian prayer is a a mighty weapon. It is the great and the final weapon that is given to us in Ephesians 6. It's not something handed out lightly. And it's also a priceless treasure We know from what the Lord said in Matthew 7, 6, that we should not give that which is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. And the idea, if somebody doesn't want some great treasure, then we we don't force the treasure upon them. Well, here, finally, at long last, perhaps, maybe the Lord was waiting, had been waiting for some time. I see they finally noticed. They finally noticed my prayers. They finally noticed the efficacy that comes from these things, the great privilege how much I desire these things, what a great joy it is for me to be in fellowship with my Heavenly Father. And they've asked about it. Well, I would say now, I just reiterate something that I've hinted at in just the words I just spoke, that we do have to ask the question, why would Jesus pray? That's why sometimes instead of the Lord's Prayer, people demur and call it the model prayer because they say, this probably isn't actually the very same prayer that the Lord himself used. Because one aspect, as we know, is that he's asking for forgiveness of sins. Well, in whatever way we want to put it, we would say, we would ask, why is the Lord praying at all? You know, if, if, if we were in Jesus' shoes, I think we'd be tempted to say, I'm the Messiah. This is great. I cannot fail. I already know every step of my way has been, has been prophesied, has been foretold, it's been predicted I can't be harmed until I finally come to the very end that was prophesied for me. I cannot be harmed. This is great. And, and you know, unfortunately, if we thought like that, and I suspect we might, we would be using Satan's logic. That is precisely the logic that Satan brings to the Lord in the desert and says, look, there, there's a prophecy about you that says the angels are going to bear you up lest you dash your foot upon a stone. So go ahead and give it a try. That's satanic logic. No, no. Christ demonstrated this supremely rich prayer life because, first of all, fellowship with the Father came naturally to him, and I mean that in the deepest sort of way, certainly came naturally to him. 
And also, though dependence upon the father came naturally. He knew, he was smart enough, you see, being, being the second, second person of the triune God, he knew in his perfect divine nature and all of the wisdom that was given to him in his, his perfect human nature, he knew that God does not just determine the end of things, but also the means to them. And of all the means to the fact that he was going to be preserved, and all the means to the fact that he was actually going to be kept and enabled to carry out his great mission, the greatest of those means was his own prayer. And his response to Satan is that he all the more prays and all the more is dependent upon his Father and upon the Holy Spirit. Well, anyways, what is the summary then? I say that Jesus had reason to pray, and we certainly have all the more reason to pray. But what is the summary of the way that he taught us to pray as we we try to understand what this sermon is about? It's all centered around God rather than ourselves. That's it. I, I hope you weren't expecting me to say something brand new. I don't have anything new to say about these words, but I want to recall us to something I hope that we recognize is that Christian prayer is God-centered. And that's the title, that's the thesis of this, this sermon, that Christian prayer is God-centered. And I, I hope that we are like the disciples. I hope that our conscience, even now, are, we're being pricked just a little bit and say, maybe we haven't been so dependent upon God. Maybe our prayers are deficient. Maybe they're not quite so wonderfully God-centered. And if so, we, we call ourselves in to what is very clearly the content of this model prayer. It is all God-centered. These four points in, as God's, what are, in what way is it God-centered? How is that working? Well, first, as God's children. That's the way we pray. Secondly, it's for God's glory. That's what we pray for. Thirdly, independence upon God. And fourthly, in God's grace. As God's children, for God's glory, independence upon God, and in God's Grace. So first, as God's children, verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. And I want us to understand that that is not our natural condition, brothers and sisters. That is not the way we were born into this world. That is not our situation in the world. John eight forty three, Jesus says to these Pharisees, why do you not understand my speech Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. He is the father of all those outside of Christ. All of us who are, all those who are in our natural condition, fallen, God is not our Father. If you're outside of Christ this moment, God is not your Father. But Satan is. You're enslaved in all of his murderous lies. You are in various ways dependent upon him. You are in various ways centered upon him and his agenda in your selfishness and in your sin and your listening to and believing a lie rather than God's truth. And so having God as our Father certainly is not our natural condition. That's what's so wonderful then about the doctrine of adoption. This, This 
doctrine which we, we have more than once said is so underappreciated, yet we ourselves never seem to quite appropriate it to its greatest and most perfect extent as it ought to be. But we know that First John 3, 1, that's going back a long time when our sermons in First John 3, but behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, and we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Behold what manner of love. He speaks as if to, this is the greatest demonstration that could possibly be made of, of God's love. Behold what manner of love it is that we, and it's bestowed upon us, not earned, but bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. It's a high privilege, a high privilege indeed. Just imagine if you tomorrow began to, to say that you are the queen's long lost fifth child, and you started putting HRH in front of your name, and, and tried to assume the privileges that would come with being a son or daughter of the, the monarch. Well, more than likely, you'd be arrested and or sectioned. Because that right, you see, is based on a reality. It's based on a relationship that you simply do not have. It's a high privilege. It's not given to everyone, but it's based on something you simply fundamentally do not have. What then can we say If God has said that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been made children of God. You have that right. He doesn't say, now just keep it between you and I. He says, no, I've given you that right. And you can use it. John in his gospel says in in John 1.12, similar idea, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Of course, that's the way it happens. The instrument of it is, is faith in Christ. But we know that in the eternal counsels of God, God long ago determined that he would set his love upon his own people, to send his Holy Spirit upon those people, to enable them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who received him, all those who believed on Christ, they become children of God. Galatians 3.26 says it very simply, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a really high privilege. And I want us to dwell in that very long, in a prolonged sort of sense, rather than just take it as something that we know and have forgotten about and doesn't mean much. You know, the the Westminster Confession, chapter 12, uh, section 1 says, all those that are justified, God vouchsafeth and, in, uh, and for his, his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That is a wonderful thought. That is our situation, our wonderful, glorious, happy situation before God that we have all of these things. All these privileges, all of these rights, they are given to us, and God says, take them, use them, I want you to call upon me as my, as your father, as Christ's father. He says, you get to do that too. 
Wouldn't it be interesting, you know, if the, if the Lord said, it divided that up and said, okay, let me tell you my prayer. My Father, who is in heaven, and said, now, <laughs> that's for me, of course. He is my Father. You get to call him my slave master. Okay? You want me to teach you how to pray? That's your situation in law, unfortunately. Say, my slave master, if you're listening today, maybe give me enough to carry on another day. Something like that. But he doesn't. He says, this is the way I pray. And I'm going to use this first person plural and say, our father. I, I use that and you get to use it too. It's an amazing thing. And we should not forget. What are the implications again for prayer? They are, abs- they are staggering. Before, you know, you have no claim whatsoever to, to ask anything of the Lord. But you, you, are some, you belong to someone else, you belong to Satan. You're asking for something that's an affront to him. And all of your requests are going to be summarily ignored. Except, of course, the request of faith. But now you have familiar access You are his own beloved child. This is the point that Jesus makes in verse 13. If you then being evil, this is the example, he's speaking of human fathers, evil. You then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see? He's... He under the, the analogy is perfect, and it is beyond perfect. It is not just merely as if you were in the situation of a child with an earthly father. You have a lot of access there. You know, just imagine if your, your father was unbelievably rich, and you had some needs, and you could come to him. It, but it's beyond that, because the Lord is reminding us that there are limits to the love, limits to the resources of, a, of, heavenly, of an earthly father, and says, if you then being evil, know that how to do this. You want to give good gifts to your earthly children. How much more so will your heavenly father give the best of gifts to us? And all that is summarized in the larger catechism. What does a preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer contained in these words, Our Father which art in heaven, teaches us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein, meaning we, we have a claim on it, with reverence and all other childlike dispositions, heavenly affections and due apprehensions of his sovereign power, majesty and gracious condescension, as also to pray with and for others. You know, and that's the thing, by the way, I noticed this, heavenly affections, fatherly and childlike affections, because it is beyond just mere access. We say it is a great thing that we have this access as a child to his father, to God, but it is also in the way that we approach him. We approach him with having this childlike affection. We do not come to him as consumers, putting money into a a machine and demanding something from him. We come as beloved children, speaking to our beloved Father in terms of the greatest and most loving affection. Well, it is our Father. We, we come in relationship as children to God. But secondly, we come for God's glory. And that's demonstrated by two very closely related parts of the model prayer. The first one, of course, being that first request, hallowed be your name. 
And that is a request that God would distinguish his name from all that is false, all that is common, all that is sinful, and that he would glorify his name. John 12, 27 says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Lord is summarizing everything that could be said in this greatest of prayers. He is speaking of his his own soon death and all that comes with it. And his supreme prayer, his summary prayer of all this is that the Father would glorify his name. He is no hypocrite in this. Again, he's not saying, look, when I get, when I pray because I am almighty God, I am the second person of the, of the Godhead. I am the Messiah. When I pray, I'm so great, I will be asking that he might glorify my name. And he, you know, he could be well excused for so doing. But no, our example, our example says, no, far be it from me to glorify my own name, but rather I seek that the Father's name be glorified. Now the Father, of course, immediately says, I will glorify it, and I will glorify your name. In fact, the Father seems very interested, almost preoccupied with glorifying the Son. So we don't have to worry about that much. Jesus didn't have to worry about him being glorified. He would be. And let me just say, don't worry about your name being glorified either. Because if you're the bride of Christ, everything that your, your heavenly husband, your spiritual husband has, gets, every accolade, every one of those things you also receive by your relationship with him. But you see, Christ's overwhelming concern is for the glory of the Father and to glorify his name. You know, in, in Revelation 15.3, you probably remember this song of Moses that they're singing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God and Almighty, and just and true are your ways, King of the Saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy? Who shall not glorify your name? That is the great thing. That is the great work of God in this, in this universe, isn't it? He, he created all things in order that he might be glorified. And all of us exist in order that we might bring glory to this God. And the true Christian, again, has no interest in making himself famous and setting apart his name. No, our great priority is that God would be glorified, that his name would be made more famous, made more honorable, made more set apart from all other false gods in this, this world, everything else that is false. And so the larger catechism at 190 says, what do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name, acknowledging the utter inability and indisposition that is in ourselves and all men to honor God aright, we pray that God would by his grace enable and incline us and others to know, acknowledge, and highly to esteem him. And that perhaps is one element that is different, uh, that's not Lord Jesus' situation. One of our problems is, and we pray that prayer, we need, we ask that the Lord would incline our hearts to these ways. Because that's our fundamental problem. So, so often we come to him, so often we live our lives as if we, the whole universe centered around us. 
As if the things that mattered, whether they happen or they don't happen, things you're trying to prevent or things you're trying to happen, are all about your name and your, your kingdom and your situation. But no, we need to pray even that our ambitions and that our priorities would be his. And it goes on, by the way, the larger catechism goes on to say, his titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatever he is pleased to make himself known by. Because when we say his name, that's what we mean. Everything that goes along with his name. His titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatever else he is pleased to make himself known by. Everything else is wrapped up in this name, the name of God. And furthermore, it goes on to say that he would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him. Because as long as there are those out there who are worshiping a false god, as long as there are those who are are lifting high the name of some false god, he is dishonored by that. And so, of course, we pray that his name would be lifted high above all these things that are false. It is his spiritual agenda that we are praying for in this world. And so likewise, and it is intimately, it is a natural segue to the other aspect of our, our, the glory of God that's contained in the prayer, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Glorifying the name of God and his kingdom being built up, those things are one and the same. And I would ask this, inasmuch as we come and we admit that not all of our prayers are kingdom-centered, God-centered, What exactly do you want to see done anyways? Do you want to see your kingdom built? Do you want your will to be done on earth? Is that what you're looking forward to? Is that what you're praying? Well, we know that that's not what Christ himself wants. What good is that? It's not going to stand. It's not pleasing to the Lord. Are you sure you even want to ask for such things? No. No, your kingdom come. We know that we should, as we saw last time, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. May the day come when we are so preoccupied with the glory of God in our prayers, so preoccupied with the building up of his kingdom in this world, that sometimes we neglect to pray for our own needs. Now, we're going to talk about that next. I don't say that we shouldn't pray for our own needs. I mean to say that, unfortunately, very often the thing that is neglected is the other way around. But God has his reasons for the priority that he gives. Even in the sequence of what we pray for, that the first thing is that God's name be glorified and honored. Well, these aspects of glory and kingdom that we have in this prayer, they come together in the ending of the version of the Lord's Prayer that we have in Matthew 6. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so that we have actually then, in in the fuller Lord's Prayer, we begin and we end with the glory of God. We begin by asking that his name be glorified. And then we end with a praise that for his is the kingdom and the glory forever. And the question is, what else is there? What else is there except for God's kingdom? What else is there except for his glory? Us? Our kingdom, our glory, certainly not. That wouldn't be Christian prayer at all. And so Christian prayer is God-centered and most certainly must be for the glory of God. Thirdly, true Christian prayer, it is independence upon God. And once again, the aspect seen in two different parts of the prayer 
In verse 3, it says, give us day by day our daily bread. Physical provision. And I, I say, not only is it okay to ask for that, such things, it is a good thing to do so because it expresses the right attitude that we should have to God. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? I mean that God doesn't want us to be self-sufficient. I mean that God doesn't want us to say, well, actually, I've got that part covered. I will pray that you be glorified in building up your church in this world because the, our confession makes it very clear that his kingdom, his outward and his visible kingdom is the same thing as his visible church. He's building his kingdom on, on this earth. As more people bow the knee to Christ, that is how he's doing that. And maybe we say, okay, I want to pray for that because I can't do that. But actually, I have my own physical provisions all covered for no, that's not what we're talking about. We want the priority, we want the precedence to be on the spiritual and on God's glory, but it is right and good that we depend on him for all of our physical needs. It expresses the right attitude of absolute dependence. Because that's what this prayer is about, that's what the Christian life is about, dependence upon God. We ought to have the dependence that we might see in a, like Elijah would have in 1 Kings 17. Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kareth, which flows, is not much of a brook, by the way, flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook as I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Can you imagine sitting there, not waiting for the Sainsbury's man to show up, but waiting for the ravens to come who are not ordinarily disposed to bring you their food? Wouldn't you be dependent upon God? Wouldn't your, your heart be in utter dependence knowing that I am stuck out here in the wilderness? No other source of food in a time of great drought and a time of great famine. And if the Lord doesn't decide to send me ravens today, I, I, will, I just won't eat. We have to be dependent upon God. But you know, I would say it's no different with the Sainsbury's man. What's the difference in the, the larger scheme? Yes, it's more visible when God does it through manna from heaven because it appears out of nowhere. There it is. Yes, it's more visible when he uses the instrument of a raven to bring it. But if he uses the instrument of a grocery man, what's the difference? Likewise, if he doesn't do it, you don't eat. And we should be dependent upon God. Now, of course, I should say that B, it is a modest request based on necessities rather than of luxuries. And so because of that, material contentment is a necessary prerequisite to pray in this Christian way. If we're not content, you can't pray in a Christian way. That's the teaching of, of 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. You see Food and clothing. Now, some of us pray for much more, much more than necessities. And I don't say that that's outright sinful to do that because it is God's delight to give good gifts to his children, although the examples he's giving all have to do with food. But I know from personal experience that it is God's delight sometimes to give us much more than food and clothing. And so I don't say it is outright sinful. What I want us to know, what I want us to understand is that we should not think that something is amiss if we do not get those sorts of things. Because if the Lord himself didn't have it, I hope we don't think that God is unjust for not giving it to us. I'll say that again. If the Lord Jesus Christ did not have it in this world, please do not think that God is unjust if he does not give it to you. 
That being said, he's a good heavenly father. He knows we have need of our physical necessities, and he's glad to give these things to us. Now, the other part of dependence upon God is seen in the request in verse 4, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So it's not just a physical dependence, it is also a spiritual dependence. Now, I have to say that this is a little bit complex, that prayer, do not lead us into temptation. It's not not self-evident exactly what it means. Because on the one hand, we know from James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But on the other hand, we know from Luke 4.1, then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Do you see? There's no mistake. God himself, the Holy Spirit, leads him into the, devil, into the, the desert in order to be tempted by the devil. God did lead him into temptation. But certainly not that he himself tempted Christ. You see the distinction? He's not tempting Christ. But he did lead him into the place of temptation where the devil tempted him. And the point of all that is that God directs our steps. We know it. God directs our steps. And it might well be God's prerogative to lead us into temptation, but we should not desire it. That prayer was never on the Lord Jesus' lips, and nor should it be on ours. But rather our prayer is that we should be kept away from it. Because our idea, our basic idea is that we are weak. We are weak and we are liable to fall. And we pray dearly and earnestly to God that he would keep us away from temptation because our basic idea is that we and ourselves will not be able to bear this temptation. We will fall. Now, that's not the end of the prayer. It goes on to say that we would be delivered from the evil one. We pray that we'd be kept away from from temptation in this way, but we go on to pray and, and deliver us from the evil one. His God is able to do that. And God certainly answered that prayer, even though he might not have answered the prayer to lead us not in temptation, if that was indeed the Lord's own prayer. The Lord wasn't pleased to answer that part of it, but he was pleased to answer the other part. That he was delivered from the hand of the evil one. And so he was again and again and again. And I believe that if we pray in sincerity and in faith, in moments of temptation and before them as well, that the Lord will also deliver us from the evil one. We know that he does not have absolute power. In fact, his power is very, very much restricted. And God has said that if we resist him, he will have to flee from us. Our problem is, of course, that very often in those moments we're not praying that we be delivered from the evil one. We're not praying that at all. We're almost glad for the temptation, unfortunately. But no, we pray that we be delivered from the evil one. And I would say this too. If we're asking from God that we not be delivered, or that we not be brought into temptation, that he not bring us, what are we saying about ourselves? What good would it do to pray that God not bring us into temptation if we lead ourselves into temptation? Because unfortunately we know that's often the case. You know, Romans thirteen fourteen says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Provisions. If you've ever gone camping, what does it mean? Provisions. You think of the things that might be necessary, the things that you might be caught out not having, and you pack them. 
All the things that you might need in order to carry out your camping trip, you pack. You make provision for it. Do we sometimes make provision for the flesh? Do we sometimes make provision for our sin? Unfortunately, sometimes we do. And at the same time, we're praying the Lord's Prayer that He not lead us into temptation. We have already marked out a path of our own temptation. We have to pray that the Lord keep us from such things. And we pray both in spirit and in truth that we be kept from all temptation. And we must in this way be utterly dependent upon God. Never because, not like Peter who says, well, you know, I will lay down my life for you. No, not like that. In utter dependence upon the Lord, knowing that we'll fall apart from him. And fourthly, how is this God-centered prayer? Yes, it's in dependence upon God. And, and fourthly, it is in God's grace. In verse 4, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And again, as I say, this is, is remarkable, because Jesus had no sins to forgive. And we have to wonder again, is that really part of his own prayer to the Father? And certainly this was the model prayer in that respect, and he was speaking for our behalf. But maybe, just maybe, Perhaps, perhaps he is speaking in terms of being our mediator, our representative. And that his people in union with him, there was sin, not his own, but that of his people. And we know, in fact, come to think of it, that he's still praying that sort of prayer even today. He ever lives to make intercession for his own people. And he's making intercession for you and I, if you're his people. We are thankful for it. But what the basic point here is that we are looking for God's grace. Friends, I hope when we come to the Lord that we're not looking for justice towards us. We are looking for grace and we are looking for mercy. Because that is the only way in which we stand before him. We are not standing before him as one of whom we have kept his law perfectly. We have not served him as we ought to, but we have sinned against him in many ways, and our consciousness of sin must be great. It must be pervasive. True Christian prayer, again, we are suffused with the idea of the glory of God, but the amazement of being his children, of having that relationship. And, and we're in, we are in utter dependence upon him. But perhaps even more so, we are, we are conscious of our status as sinners. Yes, we're conscious of being children but also that we don't deserve to be. Conscious of being forgiven, but also knowing that it is only by, grace, by God's grace that we are saved. So we look for his grace, and we must give that grace to others as well, and that's what we're praying for. You know, Matthew eighteen twenty three says this, uh, gives this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pray, his master commanded that he be sold with his children, his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison so he should pay the debt. 
So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and they told their master all that had been done. Then their master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And beloved, if we come to God in prayer seeking to exact justice from our brothers and sisters, you can be sure that prayer will not be heard. That is not Christian prayer. That is not prayer that God has given. That is not Christ's prayer. Rather, we pray that we would be able to forgive those who sin against us. Nothing will undo your prayers as fast or as sure as failing to have this attitude of forgiveness. We ourselves, because it will, of course, subvert, it will undo our, our spirit of, of coming to him in grace. We've changed our mode. There, there's, there's only two settings. It's either justice or mercy. Which setting are you dealing with God? If you, you can't switch between them. If you are yourself dealing with him and you want, I want the grace. I want the grace mode, Lord. The grace mode in which I get all these things that I don't deserve. The grace mode in which instead of going to hell and be delivered to the torturers, I'm forgiven my debt. You can't just turn around and, and switch it on someone else. We must come to him cognizant of our own, the mercy that has been given to us, and very willing, likewise, to give it to others who have sinned against us. Well, so many applications, as usual. How do we begin? I'll begin with the most simple and most basic to ask the question, is God your Father? And some of us may lack that basic prerequisite. Some of us, he's not our father. And if God is not your father, he will not answer you. And the only way to change that, the only way for that to to be different is by believing in the son. That's how we become children of God. That's how we we have this right, this privilege, this access. The door into the heavenly throne room is not open to anyone else other than those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, as I say, indeed, the one prayer that he will answer, the prayer of faith of one who has been enabled by his spirit to call upon him. Of course, yes, he will answer that great prayer. And that's the one prayer I want you to pray, if you're outside of Christ, to put your faith in him, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And you will be called the sons of God. That's the great privilege on hand. Secondly, of course, we have every application for the way that we pray as Christians. And I've given, I think, most of the specifics in these various ways, and I don't have much to add. But I have one general idea for improvement. If I could summarize all of these things, what is the way I think that I could improve my prayer? What is the way I suspect maybe you could improve your prayer? It is simply that we have more God in our prayer. This model prayer is absolutely God-centered in every dimension. There's no, no, nothing apart from that. And it is so clear. It is unmistakable in the Lord's model for us. And the question is how clear, how unmistakable is that God-centeredness in our own prayer? 
how much man is in there compared to how much God? How, how, how big is the God that we're speaking to? How, how large does he loom on our, on our horizon? Does he fill our whole horizon? Or is he smaller than that and more limited? Not only is he, is he big, but how close is he? Does he have that fatherly care as we're supposed to, as we're to call upon him? It's not, pardon me, I am Christian number 457-8110-B, and I would like to make my request for the day. You see, God is involved in our lives, isn't he? I hope he is. I know that he says he's going to be. And he himself is concerned with us. And when we come to him, we're not trying to get his attention, are we? That's what the worshipers of Baal do. They cut themselves in order that they might be heard by their false god, because he doesn't exist. God is, as it were, waiting for us. He knows what we're asking for before we even ask. And he is more concerned for our good brothers and sisters than we are ourselves. The question is, how God-centered are we in that prayer? How concerned are we for his glory? How concerned are we for his kingdom? We need to be thinking God-centered thoughts we need to be praying God-centered prayers. We need to change the way our, we pray in that way. And thirdly and finally, I would say that we need to engage in spiritual warfare. I think it is of God's providence that we have come to this particular place in teaching us how to pray at this moment in time. Because for those of you who have just joined us, recently joined us, I want you to know that this is a dangerous business. Seeking to preach the whole counsel of God. Seeking to evangelize to the lost in a clear way. Seeking to plant other churches. That makes you a target. That absolutely makes you the target. And I think we have been the target of such things. And we need to pray. We need, this is the right way to pray. I want us all, if I could convey anything, please let us all be praying this God-centered kind of prayer in all these ways that I've just mentioned in, as our relationship to him as his, his, his beloved children and being centered on the glory of God and building up his kingdom in utter complete dependence upon him and certainly in his grace. You know, 2 Corinthians 2.10 says this, Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, just briefly to unpack that, what he's talking about is if there are differences among the people of God, there will be sin, there will be sin, and there will be offense, and there will, in some cases, be right discipline. Correction, rebuke, and so forth. But in the course of time, if those things are not addressed, if those things are not uh, forgiven, but rather we hold these grudges, we're looking for God's justice rather than his mercy towards them, we are seeking, we, we, we have to understand, brothers, we're not the only one, we're not alone in so doing. If that's the thought that's crossing your mind, you have to understand there's someone else who is working with you. Who is saying, go for it, you, you're right, absolutely. Throw that spear, twist that dagger, see if you can find some way to sully that person's name or withhold from him some good. Do you know who it is? It's Satan. 
Because that's his primary way of destroying churches. And we're not ignorant of his devices. And therefore, in our prayers, we must seek out those ways in which we have something against our brother. If we have some sin, something that they're not aware of, we should bring it to them. Not carry it with us. Not load it up for the future. Not turn it into a weapon. But we should make the fault known. And we should be ever ready, willing to forgive. Well, in our spiritual warfare, we must have this. And we must not be ignorant of his devices. We must be people of prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a joy and delight indeed it is to call you this. We can hardly believe our good estate, our good condition of being children of the living God through faith. And Lord, what can we say? What shall we ask for you, from you? As Lord, we know that you're well disposed to give good things. Lord, surely we do pray for the Holy Spirit above all things. We pray, Lord, for those who are outside of Christ, those of our friends and family, those who come to Christianity Explored, and we give you thanks for them, that you would grant to them the Holy Spirit in order that they might believe. And for us, that we might be filled with your Spirit, among other things, just so we can pray aright. Lord, we do pray that you would enable us to come with the express desire that your name would be sanctified, it would be hallowed, that you would be glorified in this world. Lord, it is your glory that we seek and how we pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified here in this place, in Gateshead, in the Northeast as a whole, in this, this nation, that you'd be lifted up against all false ideas and all false religions. How we pray that your kingdom would be built. Lord, we're thankful for the small hand that we have in these things, and we pray that you'd build up the church in Hexham. Lord God, we recognize that at the same time there is spiritual opposition, and how we pray, Lord, that our prayers would also be an utter dependence upon you. We cannot do these things. None of the things that you call us to do, we can do on our own. We cannot even feed ourselves. We pray, Lord God, in dependence upon you, that you would grant all that is necessary. And that we would not be led into temptation, but we'd be delivered from the evil one and all of his machinations against us. And that in all of these things, that you would receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.